Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Hi, I'm Sarah Charak, and it's a privilege to be learning some Mishnah with you today. I spent a year and a half learning Jewish texts, including quite a lot of Mishnah and Gemara, at Medrash at Lindemaum in Jerusalem. Now I study history and law at the University of Sydney. And this year, I'm researching the impact of Australia's exclusive immigration policy on Jewish migrants in the early 20th century. I'm particularly interested in the way that mixed or multicultural societies manage issues of difference. So it's appropriate that I'll be talking a bit about Masechet Avodah Zarah today, and I think it will become clear why in a moment. The title of our tractate, Avodah Zarah, although usually translated as idolatry, literally means foreign or strange worship, which tells us the first important thing about this Masechet. We're talking about how to relate to the practices of others which are foreign, totally confusing to us. What happens when we disapprove of other people's behavior or lifestyle? When we think that that behavior might actually be damaging, even immoral? In other words, Masechet Avodah is all about navigating a mixed society, one where not everyone is like us. The tractate presents very specific and detailed laws governing the interactions between Jews and idolaters. These laws form one set of answers to our broad questions about how to manage relationships with those who are different from us. I do think it's important to admit that perhaps not all of them are answers that we might like or understand as 21st century readers living in mostly multicultural societies. But certainly, the questions still animate much political debate in liberal democracies today. And I think that some, if not all, of the rabbis' solutions might still make some sense. The prohibition of idol worship is the second of the Ten Commandments. Lo lacha Elohim acherim al panai. You shall have no other gods before me. We are also told in the book of Shemot, chapter 34, Beware, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and go astray after their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and you will eat their sacrifices, and take their daughters for your sons. So beyond the theological point about believing in a single divine entity, rather than multiple idols, there is also a cultural point being made about not getting too close to idolatrous Gentiles. We'll see both concerns arising in the five chapters of the tractate. So now, for a bit of an overview. Chapter 1 introduces a prohibition of commerce with idolaters around the time of their festivals, because of a concern that in trading with them, one becomes complicit in the festivity, and thus in their idolatry. There are also specific items which may not be sold to idolaters for the same reason. These are items which are likely to be used in the service of specific pagan gods. I like to think about this as an early type of a boycott, a demonstration of our principled objection to idolatry and the immorality which pagan culture represented for the rabbis of the Mishnah. These sorts of boycotts can sometimes be super effective too. For example, from 1959 onwards, major anti-apartheid activists encouraged people around the globe to boycott South African products to show their disapproval of the country's racist policies. The movement gained momentum and is actually understood as one of the factors in bringing apartheid to an end. 
But the rabbis of the Mishnah are not only boycotting idolatry. They're also worried that in facilitating idolatry, one actually becomes responsible for it. This is a concept called lifnei iver in rabbinic literature, from the biblical command not to place a stumbling block in front of the blind. Not only must we not literally cause others to trip, we also mustn't cause them to spiritually fall over, and providing an idolater with the financial or practical means with which to perform idol worship would be doing just that. Chapter 2 warns against the perceived violence and immorality of idolaters, something which we'll come back to soon. It also details items which are forbidden to be bought from idolaters. These include foods which might either be byproducts of idolatry or merely foods whose kashrut is difficult to ascertain and therefore need to be prepared or supervised by a Jew. The list includes wine, wine vinegar, cheeses, milk, oil, bread, certain types of fish even, and more. In a fascinating book called Foreigners and Their Food, an academic named David Friedenreich analyzes the way that rules governing eating, not only in Judaism, but also in Christianity and Islam, help each religion define an us and a them. In other words, a particular community's boundaries. Sharing a meal around a table is quite a social activity. To offer food in many contexts is to offer friendship. So to accept that food is to accept, acknowledge, and thus reciprocate those feelings. So by forbidding us from eating foods prepared by idolaters, the rabbis of the Mishnah were trying to avoid assimilation. The logic, well, if you can't eat their food, you can't eat with them, so you can't hang out with them, so you won't become like them. Now, studying at a secular and very diverse university, with very few observant Jews around me, I certainly can attest to the social barrier created by kashrut, not being able to eat or drink with my uni friends, and for our American listeners, that's college friends, makes our relationship a little less intimate. This is interesting because of the shift from the themes of chapter 1. There, we were worried about the spiritual threat posed by idolatrous practices. Here, we're worried about the cultural threat of assimilation instead. Chapter 3 details both the forbidden and permitted uses of various idolatrous items, as well as buildings. Chapter 4 continues on this theme, also discussing how to nullify an idol so that it no longer has idolatrous status, and then citing a discussion continued in chapter 5 about the issue of Yayin Nesech, the prohibition against drinking wine prepared by an idolater, because of the possibility that the wine was actually intended for ritual idolatrous use as a libation. Chapter 5 then concludes by discussing how to kasha utensils used by idolaters. Historically, Avodazara was probably the most controversial tractate in the Talmud, repeatedly criticised by the church, which thought that the polemics and restrictions to do with idolaters were actually directed at Christians, thus painting them as immoral people. The tractate became the target, then, of many censorship efforts in the Middle Ages, sometimes being entirely removed from European editions so that it became difficult to actually obtain a copy. I want to look now at one Mishnah, which might help us to understand why Christians objected to the Masechet so strongly, and then we'll place it in context to better understand what's actually going on. So this Mishnah is chapter 2, Mishnah 1, and it goes as follows. It is forbidden to place an animal in the inns of Gentiles, since they are suspected of bestiality. 
nor may a woman be alone with them, since they are suspected of illicit relations. Nor may a man be alone with them, for they are suspected of bloodshed. A Jewish woman may not deliver a Gentile woman's baby, since she would be delivering a child for idol worship. But a Gentile woman may deliver a Jewish woman. A Jewish woman may not nurse a Gentile woman's child, but the Gentile woman may nurse a Jewish woman's child in her own home. So this Mishnah adopts a pretty harsh attitude towards idolaters. Apparently, the default is to suspect them of bestiality, sexual impropriety, even of murder. And there are some double standards too, regarding the delivering and nursing of babies. All in all, this is one of those Mishnayot which grates super uncomfortably on modern ears. But this is where my inner historian steps in to contextualize. Judaism has always been a religion of moral protest, of cultural challenge. The early monotheism of our ancestors, Avraham and Sarah, their belief in one divine being, was defined in opposition to polytheism, the widespread belief in multiple gods. And beyond this theological dimension, it was a movement founded in protest against some of the components of ancient pagan culture, including child sacrifice. In fact, the word Ivri, Hebrew, used to refer to Avraham, comes from the word meaning over. According to the Midrash, this is because our ancestors stood on one side of the river, while everyone else stood on the other. And so God declares in Vayikra, chapter 18, verse 3, You shall not copy the practices of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, or of the land of Canaan to which I am taking you. In other words, you will be different. This biblical critique of ancient Canaanite culture shifts during the Mishnaic period to a critique of the new dominant culture, Rome. This is, of course, the culture of gladiators and the infamous arena. It was also a culture which oppressed the Jews of Judea, so that while this Mishnah might sound paranoid or even offensive to us today, it totally made sense to these rabbis that it would be naive to trust their neighbours to behave morally and fairly towards them. Avoiding contact with Roman idolaters was a pragmatic, protective measure of both Jewish lives and Jewish souls. But is this sort of thinking still relevant to 21st century Jews? Is the other still a practical or moral threat to us? I think our intuitive answer is probably no. And historian Jacob Katz, in his book Exclusiveness and Tolerance, points out that Jews have related to Gentiles differently in different historical periods. This is not an unchanging picture of distrust. In fact, different Jewish communities moved between the opposing models of tolerance and exclusiveness towards their non-Jewish neighbours, sometimes deciding that the restrictions of Masechet Avodazara didn't actually apply. A lot of it depended on their particular experience with their particular neighbours, which, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. One example of this is the 13th century commentator, known by his last name, Me'iri. The Me'iri decided that our Mishnah didn't apply to the Christians who lived around him, that they were different than Canaanite or Roman pagans. These matters, he said, referring to the Mishnah that we discussed, refer to the times when those people were idol worshippers, polluted by their deeds and debased in their conduct. But for other peoples, who are restrained by the norms of religion, who avoid such base conduct and in fact impose punishment for it, these statements evidently do not apply. So according to the Me'iri, 
While there might be theological elements of Christianity which seem idolatrous or problematic to us, they are certainly not idolaters in the cultural or in the moral sense. And I think this is true of the societies most of us live in today. The legal systems and social institutions characteristic of modern democracies ensure a level of morality and justice which refute any direct comparison with the pagan cultures of the past. I want to finish our discussion with the placement of this Masechet. What on earth is a tractate about idolatry doing in Seder Nezikin, the order dealing with civil law? So according to Maimonides, its placement is intended to remind judges to familiarize themselves with the topic so that they can competently judge any cases which might arise. It also indicates that for the rabbis of the Mishnah, idolatry was as tangible and serious as theft or damage caused to another's property. But I think we can suggest a deeper reason why Avodah is placed alongside laws about personal responsibility in the justice system, which contrasts with, but also complements, our discussion of the Me'iri. All of Seder and Azikin is about building a functional legal system and a fair and cohesive society. The laws of returning lost objects, how to compensate someone when you damage their property, the command to keep the promises that we make, these are all ways to build cohesion and a sense of shared values. Avodah Zarah is here to remind us about something perhaps just as important, but quite different, that in building a society or community, we also need to be able to draw some lines, have some boundaries for ourselves to help us define who we really are. It encourages us to think carefully about how to live alongside people with whom we might have moral and religious disagreements something which I hope we can learn to navigate with sensitivity as well as strength of character. So, on the one hand, sitting at university with people of different faiths is a really enriching and important experience for me. At the same time, eating different food and spending my Saturdays differently helps me maintain a consciousness of my Jewishness, and therefore, my difference. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.